want to share with you this morning um, two passages from Scripture. First, from the Gospel of John in the sixth chapter, which the sixth chapter opens with uh, one of John's tellings of the miraculous feeding of thousands of people, in this case with uh, five barley loaves and two fish. All of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, tell different versions of uh, this story, and several of them do the same, tell the same kind of story two times um, within their Gospel. And the numbers of people fed and the number of loaves and fishes varies, but common to them all, of course, is the miraculous nature of uh, what unfolds in that event. And it would be impossible to calculate the volume of ink that's been spilled over the centuries if scholars have tried to explain or interpret or understand uh, the nature of that miracle. And was it a miracle, or were people simply moved to generosity? Or what was it that really happened? It's very clear from the evangelist standpoint that it was a miracle. It wasn't just natural human generosity, but it was an it was an expression of the miraculous nature of God's love in humanity. In John's Gospel, the question that uh, gets posed to Jesus is, uh, can you keep doing that? We, we rather like free food, <laughs> is essentially what the people say. It has echoes of his experience at the well with the woman in Samaria when he talks about a, you know, a water, the well that just continues to flow. And she says, well, give me that water, because then I don't have to come here to the well to draw out the water. No, it's not water. It's not bread, really. It's something deeper. So the, the verses uh, that we're going to look at this morning have to do with what occurred on the day after, when people come to Jesus with their questions. So the next day, the crowd was left behind and they realized that there had been only one boat and that Jesus had not gotten into the boat with his disciples. They, they were on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus' real center of life in his ministry was in Capernaum, not Nazareth. That's the, the town of his childhood and the beginning of his ministry when he Luke's gospel and he goes back to Nazareth and preaches at the synagogue and begins his ministry when he preaches on the uh, text from Isaiah 61 to set the captives at liberty, to restore sight to those who are blind and to heal the, the afflicted, to liberate those who are unjustly imprisoned. But from that point on, Nazareth recedes and Capernaum is the place where Jesus, that's his base of operations, as it were, in Galilee. In fact, if you go to uh, Israel, you'll go to Capernaum, and you'll go to an archaeological excavation of a synagogue from the first century, the time of Jesus. Uh, and it's very likely, in all probability, uh, one of the places where Jesus would have worshipped uh, during his ministry at that, in that synagogue. It's really a very wonderfully important place. The sea is also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Galilee is the Hebrew name Tiberias is the Roman name. But they travel back and forth. You know, uh, the best way in the ancient world to get around was on the water, not on the land, because on land you're on foot. And uh, when you're on the water, you had the wind. 
and the sails to get you where you were going. So they traversed the northern parts of the uh, lake, the Sea of Galilee, in boats. So they noticed that the boat, the one boat, Jesus had not gotten into it with his disciples. This is curious, right? I mean, aren't they supposed to be his followers? I don't think they're supposed to ditch him, right? Um, but in fact, I think what's happening here is it's one of the occasions in which Jesus slips away. We think of Jesus as always being in a state of constant activity, which he is very active, of course. But all the Gospels, including Luke, depict him as going apart to a quiet place, to a place of seclusion, away from the crowds, a place to meditate, to reflect, to renew, to be regenerated, to be energized in his relationship with God in quiet reflection. I think this is one of those moments. And so they had seen the disciples go off without him, and then the boats from Tiberias pulled up, and so the crowds said, well, we realize he's gone and he's not coming back, so they piled into the boats and they headed back to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they arrived at Capernaum, they found Jesus and they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? They're surprised because he was on foot. And somehow he got to Capernaum before they did. They should have arrived earlier because they came sailing along. And Jesus replied to them and said, Well, you've come looking for me, not because you saw God in my actions. You come looking for me because I fed you, filled your stomachs, and for free. You're looking for me because you look out, you want another free meal. He then continued, Do not waste your energy striving for this perishable food. Rather, work for the food that sticks with you. Makes me think of my grandmother. Be sure to finish your oatmeal. It sticks to your ribs, right? You know, it'll keep you going on a cold winter day. Some of that oatmeal is still there, I think. Go for the food that sticks with you. Food that nourishes your lasting life. Food that the Son of Man provides. That Son of Man and what he does are guaranteed by God the Father to last. The people then replied, well, what do we have to do then to get in on God's works? And Jesus said, well, then sign on, sign on with the one whom God has sent. That kind of commitment will get you into God's works. The people, waffling, asked, well, why don't you give us a clue about who you are? Just give us a hint of what's going on. When we see what's up, then we'll commit ourselves. Now, this is remarkable. The day before, he had fed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish, but they want more evidence. This is true throughout the Gospel of John. The people are always depicted as asking John for a sign. Give us some kind of proof. Give us some credential. Demonstrate to us why we should believe in you. And his response is always, you've seen what I do. I'm not going to, I don't need to show you anymore. 
believe that God is present. And so they are waffling and they ask, show us what's up and we will commit ourselves. Show us what you can do. Moses, they said, fed our ancestors with bread in the desert. It says so in the scriptures. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus replied, yes, yes. But the real significance of that scripture is not that Moses gave you bread from heaven, but that my father is right now here offering you bread of heaven, which is the real bread, the bread of God come down out of heaven that gives life to the world. It's the same idea as his exchange with the woman at the well in Samaria. It's not really water. That's what she's come to draw from the well, is water for her family. But he's talking about the water of life. It's not really bread for lunch. It's the bread of life, the gift of God's presence, the sustaining nature of God that's given down, that's coming out of heaven, giving life to the world. Every Sunday morning before I come here, I stop off at Isabel and Vincent and pick up a baguette and some brioche and a croissant. It's really wonderful. And so this morning when I went in, and Mike, who's the now proprietor, is a very good fellow, and he always asks me what my sermon is on. <laughs> I was so happy today. I said, my sermon today, Mike, is the bread of life. He said, that's a great sermon. That'll be the best one ever. <laughs> and so they jumped at that, and they said, well, Jesus, give us this bread now and forever. That's what we want. Jesus said, well, I am the bread of life. This is one of the great refrains throughout the gospel. I am the light of the world. I am eternal life. I am the water. I am the bread. I am the bread of life. The person who aligns with me hungers no more, thirsts no more, never again hunger or thirst. Amen. So as we prepare for the sacrament of Holy Communion, we remember our own tradition. In the uh, 17th and 18th centuries in New England, in a congregational church, um, there were two kinds of people, ecclesiastically defined. Uh, there were kinds of people who were full members of the covenant of the church. You know, we have a covenant, and that's what binds us together as one. But in the 17th and 18th centuries, to be a member of the covenant you had to demonstrate to the pastor and the deacons of the church that you had a spiritually regenerative experience. You had been born again in the common parlance. That's what euangelion means, the, the evangel, to be saved by God, to have your, 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 your spirit changed, your heart taken over, in the words of John Wesley, to have your heart strangely warmed. And if you could testify to that kind of experience, then it was accepted by the pastors and the, the deacons of the church. You were a full member of the covenant, and when you're a full member of the covenant, you had access to the table. You were good enough to receive the sacrament. But there was a second kind of person in the pew who were not members of the full covenant, but they were in the pews, 
but when it came time for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, no can do. You have to prove that you've been reborn by God in order to receive the sacrament. We've come a long way from that. And one of the ways in which that happened was the grandfather of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is perhaps one of the most famous of the Puritan divines, uh, the great preacher of the first great awakening in the 18th century. And he was uh, at the past, he was the pastor at the church in Northampton, Massachusetts. The Connecticut River Valley was the heart of uh, Puritan nobility, as it were. In fact, uh, many clergy, it was a legacy. Uh, the pastor of the church, the son of the pastor would succeed, or the grandson. And in that case, in Northampton, uh, Samuel Stoddard was the pastor of the church, and Jonathan, Elliot, uh, Jonathan Edwards was his uh, grandson. And he was uh, serving under Stoddard and would one day succeed him. But earlier, Samuel Stoddard, in the middle of his ministry, had a spiritual crisis. And he felt that, in fact, he had not been spiritually regenerated. He thought he had been and had testified to that as a young man, but in further reflection in his adulthood, he thought that he really hadn't and was plagued by this and confessed this uh, dilemma to an elderly member of the church um, who could rightly have denounced him. He would have been thrown out of his pulpit and uh, been you know, shamed by that. But instead, this uh, woman uh, said that I will begin a period of prayer for you, that God will speak to you and God will touch you and you will be regenerated by God's love. And so Stoddard continued his ministry, and then one Sunday, as he was serving the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, he felt his heart and mind, his spirit, overtaken by the Spirit of God. He felt himself reborn. He felt a light within, um, a, a lifting of his spirit. He was born again in the sacrament of communion and realized at that point that the sacrament was not a reward but was a means of grace. It wasn't to be restricted for the elite but was rather the opportunity for everybody to experience the love of God and the sacrifice, the gift of God's self in Jesus. And so that's really the beginning of our tradition of the open table, that all people are welcome. You don't have to prove that you're this, that, or the other thing. You don't have to be a member of this church, all the rest of it. Because really, clearly, that's what Jesus is driving at here. This bread of life, it's life. It's not restricted. It's not, uh, it's not set aside for those who are found to be favorable. So in reflecting on all this, Paul, who was a great mystic, wrote to the Ephesians, in light of all this, here's what I want you to do. I am locked up in prison for my preaching, but I want you to get out there and to walk, or better yet, I want you to run. I want you to run on the road that God has called you to travel. I don't want you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. Mark what you do with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily, pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences, and quick 
at mending fences. We have all been called to travel on the same road in the same direction, to stay together outwardly and inwardly. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who works through all, who's present in all. And everything you are and think and do will be permeated with this oneness in Jesus. We take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other. His very breath and blood flow through us, nourishing us so that we will grow up healthy, healthy in God, robust in love. That's what this meal is about. That's what the sacrament is about about being in a healthy relationship with God who loves you, accepting the fact that God's love you, becoming robust in your life of love. It's a small piece of bread. It's a tiny little bit of juice. But the gifts of heaven, the body and the blood of Christ, truly transform the human soul and sets us off not by fits and stats, but steadily pouring ourselves out for each other in acts of love. For it is God's life, Christ's body and blood that flows through us, nourishing us so that we may grow in all that we do. Amen.